part of this family. So thank you. Yeah. So uh, we're look, uh, my job today, my job, yeah, I guess it's job, uh, is to introduce the Book of Acts. Uh, and it's often called uh, Acts of the Apostles, uh, but it might, it might be called Acts of the Holy Spirit. Uh, because the same Spirit that was at work in the first century, that is clearly at work in the stories told here, is the same Spirit that is at work in us today. In this congregation here, and abroad in the world. The same one. And so we can learn uh, of the nature of that Spirit, how that Spirit operates, what it means to be deaf to the Spirit. Now some of you are looking, where is the Spirit? You know, God says, I, 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 the great Augustine, the first century Christian thinker, one of the great, brilliant, most brilliant people in history, talked about the Spirit and said, he follows hard after his fugitives. We're the ones that are running away. <laughs> He's chasing us. And it's often nice because we, right, isn't that true that we, we, we sometimes sure we know what we're doing, we know what's important, and we make them one day and realize, what in the snot was I thinking? <laughs> I just was totally, totally the wrong priority. So, uh, we should call this Acts of the Holy Spirit. Uh, next slide. So, uh, that's my basic uh, outline for today, although I, I, I'm not going to follow it entirely. <laughs> I know that's probably going to, we're going to get off track soon. Right? So, okay, that, but that's a good one. Okay, next slide. So, this is perhaps the single most important book in the entire New Testament. That's kind of funny, but, but the reason I say that is because. Um, we could lose half of Paul's letters and still have the other half. We could, we could lose three of the four Gospels and still have a Gospel. But this is the only book that tells the story it tells. Uh, what, what's going on from the, from the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus uh, and then that sort of bigger picture of the work of the church as a whole. We have a lot of individual letters and individual, individual churches, etc. But this is the only book that tells that story. Another uh, little fact to it, in case you're ever on a Jeopardy show, that probably won't happen. Uh, Luke has written more of the New Testament than any other author, if you just count up the number of words. He only wrote two books, but the total number of words, he wrote more of the New Testament, even more, uh, even more than Paul. So that's kind of an interesting uh, uh, little fact. But it's crucial, the Luke is crucial, crucial, or Acts is crucial for establishing the, the timeline of Pauline uh, chronology, like when Paul is doing what, when, like when does the Jerusalem Council happen, etc. When's it, you know, when's his conversion? And also, it's helpful as a cross reference to to Paul's theology. Next slide. Uh, it's helpful connecting the teaching of Paul to that of Jesus, and to, uh, uh, and to ensure and demonstrate the faithfulness of Paul to the Jesus tradition. You know, there are some people who say Jesus and Paul are, are very different. Um, but uh, the only differences are, are because Jesus, his teaching is in a largely rural Palestinian context, and Paul's career is in an urban Greco-Roman context. So uh, what's important is they have the same ideas, they just explain them in different terms. Jesus uses agricultural imagery, Paul hardly ever does. You know, his imagery is of the city and of military organization. Uh, but the content is, uh, is uh, strikingly, more than strikingly similar. Uh, and Acts provides a historical record, but it's, it isn't trying to tell the whole story. It's not trying to be comprehensive. This suggests that Luke has a, a set of purposes or priorities in mind. Next slide. So the text mentions only a few of the disciples. Only Peter, James, John, and Judas are mentioned. That's kind of funny. So he's not trying to tell the whole story, but he mentions he mentions a few. And other characters are brought in, and when our curiosity is peaked, they disappear. Next slide. Uh, you know, what in the world happened to the Ethiopian unit, for example? You know, there was, from the first century on, a Christian tradition in Ethiopia, present-day Ethiopia, the Tigray region particularly, but that is in the news today, that goes back to the early first century in an unbroken line that has no discernible connection after the first century to Christianity in the Mediterranean. The one we always read about and that is what we learn about in school. 
there is a, an indigenous, unbroken line to today of Christian faith, sub-Saharan Africa, that goes back to the very earliest Jesus tradition. Isn't that amazing? And yet we hardly, we hardly ever hear about that in the news or in, or in school or anything like that. Well, uh, Luke tells us that story, but he doesn't, his, his purpose isn't to tell the history of that movement. It's to say, uh, oh my God, <laughs> look, how, look how the Spirit works. You know, it plants, it plants a message uh, all over, wherever it was. And Luke is confident that that, that, that transplanted tradition, that tradition that's indigenous, that's, that's first century in Sub-Saharan Africa, that that's going to be stewarded by God and the Spirit. Next slide. And what about Cornelius, the Roman centurion of Acts 11? That's, a, that's an intriguing story. Yeah, people would like to know a lot more about him. Uh, but, you know, he's dropped. So Acts is history, but it's not trying to tell exhaustive history. It's history with a purpose. Or maybe purpose. Next slide. So how to describe the book of Acts? Maybe it should be the Acts of the Holy Spirit, as I said. Maybe it should be uh, a tale of two cities. You know, getting, getting the gospel from Jerusalem to Rome. Because that's where the book ends. Curiously. The book ends with Paul arriving in Rome. But it never tells us what happens there. Doesn't tell us, you know, whether how Paul, you know, Paul uh, ended his life, how his life ended. I mean, and so there's a lot of debate. Did Paul, did he, was he executed as a result of, after he gets to Rome, or was he set free and then traveled to Spain like he said he wanted to, and then ended up back in Rome? That's a big question. But Luke isn't trying to tell that. He's trying to say, boy, the gospel starts in this, in this relatively, from the Roman point of view, unimportant corner of their empire, and it ends up making it to the capital city of the empire. And once it's there, it's going to go everywhere. And even that, even that story, it starts with insignificance in the world's eyes. Hear that? Insignificance in the world. The world doesn't prize What's important sometimes. Right. But that doesn't mean it ain't important. Right, right. In God's view. And that's part of the message. The salvation of the world starts in what everybody else would have considered the most backward, unimportant, least likely corner of the empire, least likely population the most rejected, the most maligned. Next slide. So, reasons for writing. Uh, historical. So there's the prologue, which is already, uh, I think, already read. Uh, most excellent Theophilus. And that, of course, is pretty much the same person that Luke addresses his first book, the Gospel to. Next slide. My former book, yeah. So there, there it actually is referring to the first book, to Luke. Next slide. So Luke wants us to know he's writing an accurate historical account. Um, but it's not, uh, you know, it's a rather odd history to say. Uh, there are many interesting figures that Luke parades before us, and then he drops, drops off, seems to ignore them. So like I said, he's not, around, he's not trying to write a general account of Christian history, but uh, as I said, to get the gospel to Rome. Next slide. And the major oddity, as I said, is that Acts doesn't relate the death of Paul in Rome. Next slide. So, Doctor, one of Luke's, and this is, is this still exciting to you? This is the more lecture by the part of you. Yeah, I'm a professor, sorry. So, yeah, if you're tempted to take notes, go ahead, it's fine. So, one of Luke's chief things is to show the dynamic power of the Spirit of Jesus. For Luke, as for all the New Testament writers, the Spirit or Holy Spirit is not an it, but a person. It's a person who has a task, and his task involves you and me. And involves every human being. And involves those particularly whose hearts are open. So the Spirit of Jesus and the Holy Spirit are interchangeable. Who ever thought about that? 
Yes, there is a, a spirit in Jesus, just as we have a, a spirit, but also the Holy Spirit, as a person of the triune God, is connected to all of us, if we're believers, and seeks to be connected to all human beings. So that same spirit that was in Jesus is now directing the, move, the movement of the early Christian community, and therefore us as well, if we're willing to be open to it. That is astonishing. But Jesus heard the Spirit. That same Spirit is interested in communicating to us. But we're often not listening. We're stunned by the noise of the world. And by our own concerns. Next slide. Also, uh, you know, Peter at the end of the Gospels is dumbfounded. He has no idea Jesus was going to have the faith he had. Have you ever noticed that? I mean, he says it over and over again. By the way, we're on our way to Jerusalem. I'm going to be turned over to the authorities. I'm going to be crucified, dead, and buried. And they're like, totally surprised when it happens. I mean, how thick is that? You know? and, then, and then Acts opens. You remember the first chapter? Acts opens and there's the risen Jesus and Peter's all super excited. Awesome! You know, and before you get to verse 7, he says, Are you now going to restore the kingdom of Israel? Like, they haven't figured it out. That's how we are. We're getting so in love with the way we want it to be. And we miss what God is doing and what the best of God has for us. And then, when the Holy Spirit comes, all of a sudden, Peter is Mr. I'm on top of it. No, and that's a good thing. Like, he has that speech where he has this elaborate theological framework. And you know he didn't, like, go off and do some studying for 20 minutes. It's the Spirit of God that, that revealed it to him. That's also available to us. If we will get past ourselves. Are you tired of the empire of you? I'm tired of the empire of me. But part of me is still working to build that. Let's get more tired of the empire of me. Next slide. Apologetic. So apology, the Greek word apologia is not I'm sorry, but it is to make a defense. Christians who they were doing something the rest of the world was going to say is kind of look kind of wacky to us. So it's making an explanation. It's not so much a defense as a it's a it's a defense, but it's an explanation. Here's why I'm doing what I'm doing. Does that make sense? So Acts is apologia, giving us information as to what God is doing. And since we're alive to God, then this explains why we're on this bandwagon. Next slide. Next slide. So just, this is just questions about authorship. So there was something called the anti-Marcionite prologue. So Marcion was uh, an early uh, Christian heretic. This is a typical story. He became uh, fabulously wealthy, one of the wealthiest people in the Roman Empire. He was an entrepreneurial shipbuilder in Asia Minor, moved to Rome and threw his money around and got elevated to position of authority in the church. That never happens. <laughs> Uh, and so, and then he said, he, he like redrew, he wanted to redraw the canon. What books he thought ought to be in the Bible. And so uh, we have a, what we have is this list of saying, no, we're against Marcion. Here's the books that we know are authoritative, and Acts is in that list. So very early on, Christians around the world recognize the authority of Acts. And the Muratorian Canon is another list. There's an early list of books that Christians everywhere agree are authoritative. And in what we now call the New Testament. So Acts, authoritative very early on. Next, next slide. And, uh, and this, this idea of Luke, when he's, you know, if you read through Acts, <coughs> the story at times says Paul did this and experienced this. And then, he, then there are these we sections. We did this, and we did this. So it's pretty clear Luke, the author, is at times the traveling companion of Paul. So that's just a real kind of 
uh, what, what historians kind of call, some of called verisimilitude, like verify. It's, a, it's an unintentional hint of genuineness. Next slide. Um, and there's a good deal of medical terminology, because if Luke is a physician, that'd be interesting. So a long time ago, go ahead and the next slide, 1882, um, uh, uh, W.K. Hobart published this book, The Medical Terminology of St. Paul. So Luke claims to be a physician, and he, he knows the language, you know. You know the little hammer that they use for checking your reflexes, right? I don't, I just call it the little hammer they use for checking your reflexes. I don't know, I'm not a physician. As my niece once told a friend of hers, that's my Uncle David, but he's a doctor. But not the kind that does anybody any good. So, I'm not the kind that I'm not the kind who knows what those hammers are. Different kind of hammers. Next slide. So there's that book. Next slide. And it seems good that the author was a companion of Paul, since Paul himself tells us that one of his companions was our dear friend Luke, the doctor. So there's a cross reference. And it's a tradition going back to the, at least in the early second century, to say Luke wrote both, both Luke and Acts. Next slide. Uh, and then there's this guy, William Ramsey. So, uh, Beginning uh, about 150 years ago, uh, skeptics began looking at the New Testament and, and saying, well, I think this doesn't, seem, this doesn't seem to make sense, and this doesn't seem right. And people pointed out that, uh, that certain parts of Luke mention a city, and they say, yeah, but it wasn't in that particular province of the Roman Empire. So, um, next slide. Yeah, there he is. But here's the deal. It turns out that Luke is accurate. Because um, like we, 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 would, we kind of imagine that when the Romans set the boundaries of a province, kind of like when we set the boundaries of states, that they stay the same. But the Romans change the boundaries all the time based on, based on need. And it turns out that Luke is dead accurate. And if it was invented, he would, have, he would have not said that that city is where he says it is. Next slide. Next slide. Yeah, they didn't show a lot. A Roman historian of the first century, um, and he said, um, I don't know if I can put this. He's one of the first Roman historians who realized what we know about the Roman Empire is only the top maybe one half of one percent of the population. So there was a, a book written oh, a generation ago called The Roman Middle Class about the, about the equestrian order, the second level down, patricians, equestrians. And uh, if you had the whole population of the Roman Empire, about 300 million people, about the size of the population of the United States, one-tenth of one percent was in the top two classes. That's an incredibly steep social pyramid. That means, Sean White pointed out, that the New Testament is our best resource for understanding the social world of the Roman Empire below that very high level. The Gospels tell the story of, of slaves who become Christians and their interaction with other people. The Gospels tell the story of what it's like to join a voluntary association, in this case, the Christian movement, and how that gets organized in a city. So beginning around 50 years ago, Roman socialist ones began reading the New Testament like crazy because it was because of its accuracy. And William Ramsey, I mean, uh, uh, Anne Shirley White said about New Testament stars who were suspicious. He says, I have no idea. Well, well, most New Testament scholars, like in big universities, are suspicious of the New Testament. In my view, it is among the most accurate and trustworthy documents we have from the Roman world. And he's not a Christian. He was just saying it as a historian. 
And he's talking about, in large part, the Book of Acts. Next slide. So, uh, yeah, this way, uh, the Book of Acts refers to Perkins, meaning pedophilia, etc. Knows all kinds of things, little details that no one would know if they were just inventing it. Next slide. Yeah, and he even knows like the, 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 the names of officials, but uh, there's a wide variety. It'd be like if almost every state had a different name for its governor. You know, the governor, Grand Poobah, Supreme Blockhead, or whatever the whatever that was. But Luke knows exactly what the right names were in each of these particular provinces. So all that says, this has to be written by somebody who was actually there in the time frame purported. So all that to say, we can trust the accuracy of the Book of Acts. We can trust the journey, but also the Book of Acts. Next slide. So what's the purpose? So it's a, it's a two-volume work, Luke and Acts. So next slide. Um, so Paul's speech in Antioch, chapter 13, parallels that of Stephen in Acts 7. Both say that God's plan of salvation imposed a new pattern on the whole of Israel's history. So they had, and even the early Christians had, uh, assumed a pattern of how God acts and what God's doing. But, but, but the coming of the Spirit imposes a new pattern, a new way of how we ought to understand our history as a Christian movement. And it's a cycle of unresponsive stubbornness to living in God's Spirit on the one hand, but, uh, un but also of unmerited grace. That God always extends grace. Always. Always, always. Even to today and to tomorrow. Next slide. And Luke and Acts claims that Paul disclosed to his converts the whole counsel of God. The whole plan of God. Well, that's, that's true in Paul, so Luke is accurate there. You know, Ephesians 1-3, through 3, for instance, is a powerful uh, uh Powerful, very complex argument on Paul's behalf, where he says, um, "You know, we were made for God; we've lost our way, and we don't, we don't even realize. That's exactly we don't even realize we're whacked out, lost. But God has reached; has made it possible for us to be redeemed. And if you remember, but Acts, but Ephesians two, he says, you know." Uh, God through Jesus Christ has made one new person out of the two. He said, we human beings, originally made for each other and made for God, after the fall, we become suspicious of one another. And there's an animosity toward one another. And mistrust. But uh, Paul says in Ephesians 2, uh, well, because of what Christ has done, you know, there can be reconciliation. And I think we typically think of reconciliation as the closer we get to God, you know, the closer we get to each other, kind of triangle thing. That's actually not what Paul says there. He says, actually, we are reconciled right now. Yeah. It is the new recon reconciled humanity that God is drawing. So, not like this, but this. Because of person, you and I, we all, we are reconciled right now. The only problem is, we are not aware of it. We have to open our eyes to the new reality. That's a powerful idea. We are already reconciled. We just need to live into it. We need to get rid of the stuff that holds us back. That's a part of the book of Acts. And Paul says, um, so there's a, this plan of God, there are five synonyms. It's hidden desire, mysteria, will, philema, pleasure. It's God's pleasure. This is God's desire to give joy when we get into this. Uh, it's a purpose. Prosthesis, like prosthetics. It's a purpose that God has in mind. And it's, it's, it's His wisdom. Sophia. Next slide. So, a couple of points concerning this eternal purpose. This is really reading like a lecture, isn't it? Like you gotta take notes and don't be a quiz. I'll send out a quiz on Wednesday. <laughs> so, uh, so, basic points. Well, this is now revealed. It was always there, but it's now revealed. And uh, uh, it's put in operation. And this purpose was there in the prophets, if we had the eyes to see. And according to Luke, 
God's purpose operates sometimes through the hostility of those who oppose Him. God gets somebody sets out to do. Right? Gets somebody sets out to do. And you know, uh, sometimes we aren't, we, aren't, we aren't on board with the plan. Right? So, so if I invite you all to, to a party at my house, you know, or, or somewhere, let's say it's a party in, I don't know, Fairfield. Probably not Fairfield. Have <laughs> <laughs> you ever been to Vacaville? <laughs> I was lost in Vacaville about a month ago, just right through the, the old part of town. Like, that's a really cool old part of town. I've never been lost like it before, it's like not interesting at all. But I've never seen this will be that really cool old part of town. I don't know how to get there, but I'll this is okay. But, 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 but let's see what we're going to meet there. Okay, so we all, so we're all, all, all of us have West back there, is it? And West Falls, you know, where are you? Well, you know, I'm in San Jose. So, you know, the original directions I gave West to get there no longer work. But the new directions work. So the point isn't the directions. The point is where we're trying to get to. Making sense? So God's will doesn't change. The directions are not changed based on how locked down we are. So when we look, this purpose operates even through the hostility of those who oppose it. Next up. And we present a well-rounded fulfillment theology. That is. Believe it or not, surprising because maybe we didn't see it at a time, but this is how God's purpose is being completed, being fulfilled through the crucifixion of the of Jesus on the earth and the early church. So God was active in the story of Jesus on the early church. Human actors are part of a drama that's preordained, but flexible enough because it's about the purpose, not about the directions about where we're going, not about how we get there, uh, to be uh, to be open to human foibles. Next slide. The plot was God's plan of salvation for the whole world and for Israel. Not just for Israel, but for the whole world. That's God's purpose. You. From the very beginning. You. God's purpose. Amen. To draw you to him, to home. Mm-hmm. And the plot is outlined in the Old Testament. It's there. It's not everywhere in the Old Testament. But, but it's discernible. Jesus inaugurated this way of reading the text. You know, remember the book of Acts? Remember the book of Acts? Jesus, the resurrected Jesus, is on the road to Emmaus with the two disciples who are, you know, boneheaded about the whole thing. Well, what's he talking about? Oh, don't you know what happened? You know, and then, and then, the text says Jesus opened their minds and showed them how, according to the scriptures, it was there from the very beginning that God's Messiah would have to suffer and die and be raised from the dead. In the Old Testament, there is a lot of expectation and hope, but also in the Old Testament, there is a through line that this is how God's salvation is going to come. And so that's what's uh, that's the according to the scriptures argument. And there are actually a set of 15 Old Testament passages that occur on the lips of Jesus and in the New Testament over and over and over and over and over again. Psalm 8. Psalm 2. Isaiah 53, Isaiah 45, over and over and over. Those are just four of them. So these form a kind of a kind of lens that Jesus inaugurated and that the early church learned from him. So um, that's point five. Point six: the risen Jesus explained this to disciples. That's in the Luke, the Emmaus Road experience. Um, seven: Jesus' interpretation of the Old Testament turned out to be offensive to his opponents, certainly to the Pharisees and Sadducees, it's puzzling to his friends at first, but it is constant with how first century Jews executed scripture. Next slide. So what is the earliest preaching? So there are four speeches uh, 
uh, both five elements. And in the, there are four great speeches in the book of Acts. And this is there. Next slide. So, one of the elements. The age of fulfillment is on. We've been waiting for it. We're right in the middle of it. It's here. That which is spoken by the prophet, the things which God foreshadowed, he does fulfill. Second. Next slide. And all the Protestant Senate successors, told of these. So that's the age of the age is on. Next slide. The second element, this is taking place through the ministry, death, and resurrection of Jesus. So not only has the age gone, but it was the, the lens through which it was uh, projected, through which it came to came into being, is the life and ministry, death, and resurrection of this guy, Jesus. What about it? Well, following the traditions of scripture. He's got Davidic descent. He's from the house of David. The Messiah is going to be from the house of David. There he is. Next slide. His ministry, right? Jesus of Nazareth, a man divinely accredited you by works of power. Most said the Lord, um, your God is going to raise up among you a prophet like me. So that's part of the, of the tradition. Next slide. His death. He was delivered up by um, the determined counsel and foreknowledge of God, and by the agency of men who killed him by crucifixion. So, you know, you, you intended it for evil, but God intended it for good. Amen. Next slide. And then his resurrection. God raised him up. God raised him from the dead, according to these passages. Next slide. And by Richard's resurrection, Jesus has been exalted at the right hand of God as messianic head of a new Israel. So there's the way the text in Acts fleshes out. Next slide. And then, for the Holy Spirit of the church is the sign of Christ, the present power of the Lord. We've made that point already. The same spirit that was alive to Jesus is alive in believers today. In you and me. The only question is if we're listening. It's pretty pathetic, isn't it, that we spend so much easier to spend time watching TV shows we don't like in a few three times. Or that we are so, as a culture, becoming so allergic to thinking. But it's all about whatever is the most vapid influencer thing. Maybe I'm jealous because I'm not an influencer. I mean, just look at how I'm dressed. You know what I mean? Next slide. And there's a promise. You know, we often think of history, if we think of it at all, kind of like a race where we're starting and then we we're, we're, we're progressing toward the finish line. The Bible often thinks of things in a slightly different way. Like the end is drawing us towards it. Isn't that interesting? There's an image in the Bible of throwing an anchor out to the shore where it lodges on a rock and then you pull on the rope to draw you forward. That's a, that's a much, uh, I don't know, it's a happy image, but it's a, it's a powerful image. Because if, if it's us going from beginning to the conclusion, then we're still the one in darkness. But have you ever said this other way? That God is drawing through us, is drawing, is allowing us to draw, having history draw us toward the conclusion, instead of us doing, doing the driving. Next slide. And uh, preaching always closes with an appeal for repentance. So repent means, uh, it doesn't mean to say you're sorry or to be sorry. It includes that. It means to stop, turn around, and go the other direction. Now let's just think about your life for the last 24 hours. It's sharing time. We all got some. We all got sex. Thanks to you, God. 
that the blood of Jesus not only covers what's behind, but it covers what's going to be behind tomorrow. But forgiveness is not for us to continue. But it's to remind us of, of, the, of the love and patience and joy of our, of our God who made us and loves us and wants to draw us to what not only is pure, but what is better and healthier. So let's, let's resolve. Let's open our hearts more to the Spirit so we can identify what's trash. <laughs> That's a powerhouse. Next slide. So, other features. Interesting that Luke tells the story of the Ascension twice. One in Luke and one in Acts. And there's suffering. <clears throat> you know, the, the great Greek playwright, Aeschylus, maybe the greatest of the Greek playwrights, at the beginning, the first act of his Agamemnon um, has this from the chorus. It's the will of the gods that those who learn wisdom must suffer. And even in our sleep, pain which we cannot forget falls drop by drop upon the heart until with it, unbidden and against our will, comes wisdom by the awful grace of God. Now, that's beautiful. And the, and the ancient Greek playwrights, some of the most brilliant of all human beings ever, I mean, they understood that if we live into our addiction to ourselves, we end up destroying everything around us and ourselves. And the Greeks said, the wise ones said, turn from self-absorption. But they had no answer, turn to what? Just turn from. So it's powerful, obviously, that the gospel is the gospel says, here's what you were made for. Live into that. So suffering. Suffering, you know, when we suffer, we either, um, we either, either we lash out, and when we lash out, we become smaller. Or we, or we, And we realize that there's a part of us deeper than the part we the part we normally think about that is yearning for something more than stuff, yearning for something more than TV. So suffering allows us to stop and be thoughtful and to say, what do I really want? What am I really, what is it for which, yeah, I had to change my sentence there, it's dramatically appropriate. What is it for which I am created? Next slide. So that line, uh, you know, the first seven chapters are about Jerusalem. The next couple are about Judea and Samaria, right? That's following the pattern of Jesus. You'll be noticing in Jerusalem. Judea and Samaria, and the ends of the earth. So six, uh, so one through seven, Jerusalem, and then six, seven, on Stephen. Eight through ten about Judea and Samaria. So that's the Ethiopian eunuch story, etc. And then thirteen and following, eleven uh, ones into the earth. So next slide. So uh, Peter, and then thirteen, Paul's first missionary journey, Antioch and Antioch goes to Cyprus and then to Eastern Asia Minor, so but, but like uh, the eastern part of present-day Turkey. And then there's this Jerusalem Council where they have to figure out, you know, is, is the Spirit really with Paul? Because God really want the message of Jesus to go to the Gentiles. And they decide, yep, 
God bless. And then there's two more journeys, but a long one of, of, of Paul to Asia Minor, uh, Bithynia, which is the the region of uh, the, the north north coast of Turkey, so southern uh, Black Sea, the southern border of the Black Sea, and then into Greece. And then the last uh, journey where Paul ends up in Rome, uh, eventually, and then it, it ends there. Next slide. So I, I've got some. Uh, some audio, 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 audio. Uh, so, can we just do, do you have time for some pictures? Yes, yes, yes. I need, I need clear affirmation to go forward. So. Uh, first thing, so there, there's the Roman Empire. Uh, the Roman Empire, like if you, if Southern England, if you could think of British Columbia, Vancouver, and Egypt would be in the Caribbean. So that's the size of it. The Roman Empire is, is about the same size as the United States, but with a big hole in the middle. Um, that's the Mediterranean. So just to give you a sense. Now you just think about what it's like to travel the Roman Empire. Paul walks. I bet if I said, hey, Let's all go walk just from here to the Salvation Army thing right by the freeway. You know, I say, Amen, dude. That's a great idea. I'd love to do that walk. Let's do it twice. I mean, we don't want to walk more than a half a mile. Next slide. So uh, that's just that's just these journeys. You can see the first one is just it, it's just a uh, eastern part of Asia Minor. Second one. All the Asian Minor and Greece, and then third is mostly just traveling your own. Next slide. Um, so that's the first journey. Just uh, the, the, you can see the little arrows there. Next slide. So that's what Antioch looks like. The ancient Antioch, Antioch in uh, present-day Syria, probably the third largest city in the Roman Empire, had a population density five times that of New York City. No running water. No indoor heat. Wooden tenements. Squalor is the name of the game. Next slide. There's Cyprus. Paul goes on Cyprus. You know, he crosses through Cyprus. Next slide. Uh, this is Antioch in Pisidia, so a different city named Antioch in Asia Minor. That's just those are Romans here in the Romans. Next slide. Here again, that's what uh, the main one of the main drags look like looks like today. Next slide. Again, next slide. Uh, so here's what's left of a lot of these cities. They're just mounds, <laughs> and these are uh, mostly countries that are that have been Muslim for you know over a thousand years so they're not necessarily all that interested in uncovering Christian sites. Now some of them that like like Ephesus are close to the Mediterranean, then there's a they know there's a tourist trade there. Uh, but but a lot of sites that Paul visited are just like that. And unexcavated ever. Next slide. So there's Derby, looks just like it. Hard to tell the difference. Next slide. Journey number two, next slide. So that's Ephesus. So you can see, like that road going out, that's the road, the ancient uh, shoreline, and the Mediterranean, it's, the, it's tilted in a little bit. So that would be the main drive. There's the amphitheater, where there was the greatest Diana of the Ephesians riot. Say amphitheater, next slide. So that's, uh, then from that slide, if you're in the amphitheater, instead of going straight to the ocean, to the Mediterranean, you turn left, it would be the main drag. And here's like a, that's like an ancient billboard. And it's a, it's a left foot, and you can't really see it, but there's a, there's a, a, a drawing, and it's intended to be an advertisement saying, there's a brothel up ahead on the left. <laughs> I mean, whatever's on our internet, they had it, you know, before we Next slide. And there's a, that's the, I mean, they did, they reconstructed the actual seating arrangements. But that's like an ancient public restaurant. Next slide. Um, that's a, that, that's a, the front of what is called a, a famous library in Ephesus. Next slide. Um, it's the same. 
I guess I thought it was a good idea to have two photos of the same thing. Uh, now this is Tarsus. That's a Roman irrigating Tarsus that Paul grew up. Next slide. Uh, that's Colossi. So this is further west in Asia Minor. Uh, and it's one of those cities, so Colossi and, uh, um, um, oh, the, the, what's the, the, the city that's destroyed by uh, earthquakes? No, 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 no. Um, I'm not trying to play a, 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 a some word game. I, do, I, can't, I can't remember. Um, so let's take where, where uh, Philemon was. Okay, let's see. Yeah, okay, better. So, uh, um, also, those are just uh, largely unexcavated mounds. Next slide. Uh, there's a, the remains of a synagogue in Sardis, one of the seven cities of, of Revelation, right? The seven cities of Revelation. Next slide. So that's the same uh, site as the interview. I mean, that dates to the first century. Next slide. Uh, Philippi. So now we're in Greece. Next slide. Uh, so the ancient site of Philippi is maybe 20 acres or so. Next slide. So there's Athens. Next slide. Uh, so the two guys, you can see the backs of their heads in the lower frame. I took that photo. So <laughs> Probably photography. Uh, so these are two of my two of my friends, and that's the Acropolis, or the that's what's left of the Parthenon on the Acropolis. Next slide. So this is from the Acropolis, and if you can see that hill, like right there, that's Mars Hill. So this you know the story of, of Paul uh, speaking to you know to the crowd, and it's it's kind of, it's just wacky dangerous getting up there. It's like there's no. Ladder in, and the ground is wild. It's, it's amazing that like they don't have 20 people a day break their leg walking around. Like Next slide. Uh, once again, the Acropolis in Athens. Next slide. And that's uh, that's um, uh, it's in Greek. It's uh, uh, the text of Paul's speech on Mars Hill. That's on the face of Mars Hill. Next slide. Uh, yeah, and it's the view from Mars Hill of Athens. Next slide. So here's ancient Corinth. Now, Paul, remember, uh, was in Corinth. He was there for uh, a year and a half. And uh, planned, uh, was involved in, in planning something with the church there. Next slide. Uh, I don't know who those people are. I just got uh, somewhere. Next slide. That's again the Acropolis in Corinth. Next slide. So this is, this is one of the main drives in Corinth. And you remember, in Corinth, there's a story in Acts 15 of Paul being brought up on charges, and the Roman uh, governor Gallio is there, but Gallio says, I'm not even going to hear the case, I'm throwing it out. So that was right at the end of that roadway, uh, right up those steps. So I mean, I don't know if, this, if you get these kind of feelings if you're in some historical spot, but you can stand there, and it's, you know, it's as far as from here to that wall. And, and if you think about it, you're, okay, so I'm within four steps of where Paul actually stood that day. Next slide. Uh, that's just the remains of some uh, of the area around ancient Corinth. Next slide, and that's the actual spot. So the the Roman governor Galileo was sitting up there, and Paul standing right about where, where I was, probably when I took that photo. Next slide. So third journey. So Caesarea Maritime. So there's two Caesarea, right? And one of them is a, is a city in Galilee. The one of them is this city on the coast, uh, the Mediterranean. Next slide. So that's a photo I took when I was there, I don't know, seven years ago. Next slide. And you see a Roman aqueduct bringing the water there. Next slide. And that's a view from uh, above, obviously. Uh, and so Paul, you know, you can see at the, at the it'd be the right-hand side near the top of the screen, there's a, an amphitheater, and you can see like a Ben-Hur circus, like that race, the race course that's, you know, long and thin like that. And so Paul would have been in prison probably, because he's in prison there, he's, he's under arrest for two years, probably where that red circle is. Next slide. And there's Malta, uh, where Paul ended up being uh, right, shipwrecked. And it, it was the issue with the poisonous snakes, etc. Next slide. Okay, so that, that's, uh, that, that's, the, that's it.
so big picture, what do we take what do we take away from this? Big picture, what should we take away from this? Um, God is at work in the lives, through the Holy Spirit, in the lives of the people in the first century. And that same God, that same Spirit, is at work here and is seeking to connect ever more powerfully with you. There's a purpose here that goes beyond the stupid, foolish, vapid things that we are occupied with. And you know the design of the, of the mindless culture machine is to keep us distracted. And it, it says, you deserve whatever you want. Let's follow that logic. Sooner or later, just think about driving on the freeway. So follow that logic. Every other human being is the impediment to your dream. But we are built for each other. We're built for relationships. And we're built to be connected to the God who made us. Big picture of Acts is that same God yeah. at work in the story of these Christians. Yeah. Inexplicably, the, the message of, of the most important message of the world, of, of hope and salvation and healing and wholeness, starts in the most unexpected back corner, backwater of the empire. And it gets it gets to the capital city. May the Lord help us to desire what we need and not what we want. And may the Lord help us to want what we need. Amen? Amen. Thank you very much.